All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School. Um, you know, it's an interesting phrase, Sunday School, isn't it? You kind of grow up with that phrase, so it kind of sounds like it's for little kids. And it is, but it's also for us. It's a school. On Sunday. On Sunday. <laughs> uh, a, lot of people, a lot of people call it Sabbath School, which... Kind of sounds a little more reformed, I suppose. But either way, um, what we're trying to do is, is kind of a dualistic thing. We're trying to give, our, give you all information about history, um, people that have influenced the Christian world, particularly in America. But we're also trying to demonstrate what we can learn from them. Uh, Sometimes we use good examples, like Jonathan Edwards, and sometimes we use people like Charles Finney. So today we're going to talk about Charles Finney. It may not be the, uh, this isn't someone you want to admire, but it is someone that we could learn a lot from, um, especially today. Uh, Charles Finney, I believe, would be very successful today especially with the way social media is constructed. Um, and so I want to I wanna show that even though he lived a long time ago, um, in a time that maybe we can't identify with, uh, there's a lot of Charles Finney's around today. And what we don't want to do is become one ourselves. So, with that kind of an introduction... <laughs> Uh, let's have a word of prayer, and then we will get going. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we, uh, we come before you this morning uh, seeking wisdom. Lord, you said that if we ask in faith without doubting that you would give it. So, Lord, we ask in faith that you would bestow on us wisdom this morning. Lord, that we might be able to uh, understand what you might have for us today, uh, that we might be able to even uh, learn something that we can apply to our heart today. And Lord, I ask that you would give me wisdom as I speak these words that I speak uh, accurately uh, and clearly. We pray that you would uh, bow our hearts before your word, that we might believe you and believe what you have for us today, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Okay, well, let me give you just a few things to give you an overview. Uh, like I said, we're going to talk about a man named Charles Finney. He was around, uh, and a lot of people believe that he was much of the reason for what's called the Second Great Awakening. You've heard of the First Great Awakening with uh, Jonathan Edwards, um, where there might have been, at least in my opinion, probably more of a genuine awakening. The Second Great Awakening has a little bit of suspicion to it, uh, and we'll find out why that is today. Uh, the person we want to concentrate on is Charles Finney. He was born August 29th. So his birthday is coming up, uh, 1792, and then he died August 16th, 
1875. He was born in uh, Warren, Connecticut. Uh, he was the youngest of nine children, and being the youngest myself, I can tell you, uh, he was most likely spoiled. I don't know this for sure, but the youngest is always spoiled, let's face it. I can, I can attest to it. It's fine. It's not really that we're spoiled, it's more that uh, by the time they get to the youngest, they're, they're tired. They're like, whatever. Just have the oldest take care of them, right? So, anyway, uh, so he was the youngest of nine. Uh, he was a son of farmers. Uh, he, they, uh, li they ended up moving to upstate New York, uh, what's called Jefferson County. Uh, Finney never attended college. Now, that's going to be important. Uh, there was, in those days, uh, college had very specific applications. It's not like today where when you graduate high school, you obviously just go to college. You don't even know what you're going to major in yet. You just go. Um, but back then, it had specific, specific applications, and so there was a lot of apprentices uh, back then. If you wanted to be a, uh, a lawyer, for instance, like what Finney was, was trying to become, there was uh, an apprenticeship that you would go under, things like that. So anyway... I say that not to be all elitist and like, well, he didn't even go to college. So how can we trust anything that comes out of his mouth? Uh, but we'll talk more about that in a little bit. There is <laughs> um, he and his family attended a Baptist church as he grew up, um, where there was a lot of uh, revivalism, if I can put it that way, within that church. Uh, it tended to mean there was a lot of emotional appeal to people getting saved. Uh, there was uh, most likely in those kind of churches back then uh, not so much studying of the word as it was a constant gospel message every Sunday. Um, and I know that kind of sounds bad that I just said it that way, but it's, uh, it lent itself to people not growing because they were constantly hearing the gospel message for people that didn't know the Lord and they never got into the depths of Scripture to grow those who did know the Lord. It was a beginning to uh, an idea that I think, and again, I, can't, I haven't done the research to prove this yet, but something I think was an American idea, which is that the church is designed for the unbeliever. Uh, up until America... Uh, the church was designed for the believers. The unbelievers were welcome, and they wanted unbelievers to come and listen. But church, the design of it, the reason it existed, even uh, having a school, Sunday school, and things like that, all were designed for the believer, because there was the idea that church is for believers. Uh, that kind of turned, during, I, I believe, during uh, the revivals in America, and then the church suddenly started to become for the unbelief. Uh, so the, the message every Sunday wasn't to grow those who believed, but continuing the outreach to those that did not. Um, we see that today, right? We see that in, uh, I was sitting in uh, a coffee shop a year or so ago, and of course, 
in a coffee shop, especially at Starbucks, you're surrounded by pastors who don't have offices, apparently. And so there was this pastor and his assistant pastor sitting at a table with this other man. And I thought, oh, I wonder if he's getting counsel. Uh, I wonder what he did. Uh, and I know you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't be thinking these thoughts. It's terrible. But I started listening, and it turned out the guy was, his job was to design churches. And so they were asking him all kinds of questions, both financial questions and strategic questions, down to, you know, does individual seating work? Should we go back to pews? Do people like pews? And they're like, no, pews are not trending now. Uh, it's, it's individual seats. And they said, and surprisingly, it's not theater seating. It's, it's actually chairs. People like to see the chairs because it kind of gives that hipster vibe. And they were talking about all this stuff. Uh, none of it had to do with the gospel. It was all about how do I strategically reach the unbeliever uh, in the community. And, and it, it you know, came down to even music and things like that, uh, where you should start off with secular rock, and then, you know, then during the service you move to uh, the Christian uh, you know, music and stuff like that just so people feel at home when they come in. You know, if they hear a U2 song, they're like, oh, I know that song, and they feel like, they feel like maybe this church will be okay. And of course, the free coffee never hurts. Yeah. So anyway, this is the American church today, right? They're designer churches, not for the believer, but to try and get to the unbeliever. And there's nothing wrong with trying to get to the unbeliever. Let me keep saying that. But church is supposed to be for the, believe, the believers. Anyway, that was a side issue there. So as, uh, as Finney grew up, he ended up in uh, what's called <clears throat> Adams, New York, a little town in upstate New York, where he entered a congregation uh, in the Presbyterian world. And... Uh, this church was led by, by a man named George Washington Gale. And George Gale was the uh, head pastor there, and uh, he worked with, uh, with Charles Finney. Uh, Charles Finney came in as an unbeliever, kind of one of those guys that are curious, but really just wanted to stir things up. He was kind of a jerk. Um, he... Uh, he didn't believe, and so as, you know, after the pastor was done preaching, he would like start, start these arguments about, well, you know, how can you, how can you be sure about this, how can you be sure about that? And, and he was trying to lead people away from the, uh, the work that the pastor was doing. Um, and so, and this part, part of this was his argumentative nature uh, was because he was studying law. Not at a college, but he was an apprentice. Um, and he was, a, he was a tall guy. He was like 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, he, uh, he was known as having piercing eyes. And I think I know what that means. It probably means he had blue eyes. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, everything was painted back then. They didn't have uh, colored pictures. But they said he had piercing eyes. So he must have been kind of a good-looking guy, tall guy. Uh, you know, he, he was... Uh, familiar with argumentation, so he wanted to, so you can see how people were kind of attracted to him and wanted to hear what he had to say. He was studying to be a lawyer, so they thought, well, maybe he's smart. And so as he's art trying to argue people out of heaven, 
if I can put it that way. Uh, he was a real problem. But then he came to know the Lord. And, he be, and of course, all that zeal against God then became all this zeal for God. And this excited uh, the pastor, George Washington Gale. Because someone who now had this zeal against God has zeal for God, and that was exciting to him. He would, you know, people looked up to this guy. You know, he looked, they looked up to Finney. And Gale thought, this guy can really be used for the Lord. Now, I want you to understand the kind of humility it takes for a pastor to do that. Right? I've been in churches where the pastor gets uh, uneasy around people that influence others. Instead of getting excited about it and mentoring them, they become enemies. Right? But Gail had the humility to say, this young man uh, has potential, and I want to, I want to uh, mentor him. Now, just to give you a little context, that's just a little overview of, of where Finney was, but uh, give you some context, you have to understand, uh, after, the, um, after the first Great Awakening, you had a lot of unity going on. Um, the uh, Presbyterians and the Congregationalists had this unit, uh, this this uh, unification thing uh, plan called the Plan of Union of 1801, which was kind of like having, trying to uh, demonstrate that the Congregationalists, Congregationalists are people that are congregations that are more, if I can put it this way, uh, Baptistic in their government. Uh, the, the congregation kind of votes on everything and uh, they can even vote a pastor right out of the church. Um, and then the Presbyterians, of course, uh, has a, a structure that has a presbytery over the church in which all that governance goes through. But even though they had different gov governments in their church, they felt they had a union in their theology. And so you had Congregationalist uh, churches and Presbyterian churches agreeing on the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so you had a lot of unity. Well, that, of course, never lasts, right? And so by the time Finney's coming around and getting involved in his church and things like that, especially in New York, and I don't know what happened in New York, but something happened in which it is a cursed place. It's just cursed. And I, I know this is probably too early in the morning for this kind of humor, but... Uh, if you look at New York, <laughs> as far as churches go, the problems always come from New York. I don't know what it is, but this has happened in the PCA. Most of the problems come from New York Presbytery. Uh, it happened in the PCUSA. There was a lot of problems in New York Presbytery. That's, that's where a lot of that tension came. And then we find, after the second, or during, as the first Great Awakening starts, you know, cooling down, New York starts having this diversity in it. Um, no longer is it just, you know, Presbyterians and Congregationalists all living in this wonderful world of Westminster Confession of Faith. Now you have things like Methodists start coming in, Free Will Baptist starts coming in, the, a group called the Christians came in who were against denominations altogether. They didn't like denominations. Of course, they became one. 
<laughs> funny how that works. Uh, but the Methodists and the Free Will Baptists were people that were very concerned about human free will. And this is because they had a very strong belief that humans have the power to either choose, uh, to choose themselves into heaven or choose themselves into hell. And God is, you know, sits back in heaven and just hopes for the best. He does what he can, but he doesn't want to interfere too much because that would interfere on your free will. So he becomes what I, what I explained to my students. He becomes the prom queen God, right? The prom queen God who sits up waiting to be asked to, to prom and has no power over who's going to choose him or not. And he just worries and rubs his hands together hoping, please, somebody love me. And of course, that's the, that's the God that is so appealing to the unbeliever, right? The, believer wants, the unbeliever wants to believe that they have power over this God and they can choose that God if they want to. And that's appealing and that gets them in the seats, right? And if you have enough emotional appeal to them, uh, they, might, they might choose it. Okay? So this has been, and now this is going to come, this is going to be important later on as we, as we get going here. Okay. So I need to hurry because I have pages of this. I promised we'd get done. Okay. So with Gail, this is the pastor of the church that, uh, that Charles Finney is at. Gail, under Gail's direction, uh, he then brings Finney under his tutelage uh, to, to try and get him ready to be ordained. Now you have to remember, uh, Finney is converted, and now he's immediately brought under Gail to be trained for ordination. Okay? Uh, he is eventually ordained less than two years after his conversion. So does that send a red flag up? Yes. He's a new convert. And I would even say this. I'd even go a little further and say, you know, because Scripture doesn't say a new convert is someone who has been saved under three years. It doesn't say that. It just says not a, when it gives the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 of who can be a pastor one of the qualifications is you can't be a new convert. Well, it doesn't give you a, a, a date, right? Like two, three years. Well, why? Well, I think it has something to do with a new convert isn't just someone who is new in time, but it might be someone who is in maturity new. And I think people can stay in a maturity of newness for a long time. Um, I definitely think two years is too fast. But nonetheless, with the zeal and the way he influenced people, that was too tempting for Gale, and he wanted him out in the ministry as fast as possible. And so he became this evangelist, and he saw, uh, he saw results really fast. Um, Within his preaching, uh, within just a, a year or so, first he saw 60-some people uh, converted, and then 100, and then 100-and-something, and then 200. And you saw this uh, success. 
right? I want you to think about this. Uh, When someone goes out and preaches and people are being converted, isn't it true that our first thought is, well, that must have been the will of God for him to preach? Because look, there's people being converted. I mean, doesn't that immediately come to mind? And I would say this, what, what I want you to think about as we continue through Finney's life, I want you to think about how God uses people, uh, whether they are doing what's right or not. Uh, that possibly what we see as successful uh, isn't success at all. It's in spite of And even maybe to demonstrate to the rest of the world, I can even use someone that is uh, if I can put it this way, someone that's this bad. I mean, I look at Jonah, and you look at Jonah and you see someone that did not want to preach God's word. Especially to Nineveh. Right? Yeah, and he was very effective because God made the words effective. But Jonah was kind of a terrible guy, right? It doesn't even end well. It doesn't even end with Jonah saying, you know what, Lord, I am so sorry, because look how Nineveh has changed. Forgive me. No, he's like, it's getting hot again. The end. I mean, it's like, you know, because he wanted the little thing. Anyway, the point is, uh, you you see over and over in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, people that are, that are not, I mean, so many people better qualified, have a better heart for the Lord, yet God uses this guy, right? And so uh, I want you to keep that idea in mind. So he starts using these techniques as as he's giving his sermons. We would call them methods. Now I want you to understand uh, down the road, a ways, uh, there's uh, several Methodist churches. I mean, there's a lot of Methodists around here in South Carolina. Here in Spartanburg and over in Greenville, Methodists. Does anyone know why we call them Methodists? They use methods in some way, but I don't Yeah, that's exactly right. They had particular methods they used uh, in their, in their uh, services to get people to convert, uh, because they had a strong belief that it's up to you. Now, the Holy Spirit will help out as best he can, but he's not going to interfere with your free will. So it's really up to getting your will to convert. And how do you get someone's will to convert? Well, you've got to use methods, particular methods that work. Um, my wife and I, went to uh, Disney World. I, I know I've confessed this before, and I, I apologize for going to a horrible place. But in order to get free stuff, sometimes the hotel people will say, hey, if you go listen to these people give their spiel about a uh, timeshare, you only have to listen to it for a couple hours, and if you listen to it, they'll give you free food at SeaWorld and free tickets to SeaWorld, and the free food alone is worth it. But free tickets, I mean, it's almost 100 bucks a person. So, yes. 
So we went over there thinking all you're going to do is sit in a big room and someone's going to be up there, they'll say some stuff for an hour, and then you say, nope, and then you go get your tickets. It doesn't work that way. I was fooled. Uh, you sit at a table and a guy comes. And he says, well, let me, I, he says, I know, you know, you don't have to say yes. And, you know, he kind of disarms you. He's like, you know, this, you just have to hear me out and then you, can get, you guys can go. I know you probably won't buy anything today. It's fine. I just want to give you, you know, our, our, yeah, just hear me out for a little bit. I'm like, okay. And so he's like, blah, 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 blah. You know, wonderful place, wonderful place. Hey, do you want to see it? And I'm like, that's kind of interesting. So you go look at it and you're like, oh, this is very nice, very nice. And it says, only this much a month. And I'm like, well, that's not good. And so they sit you back down and says, I understand, I understand, it's a lot of money. Um, let me talk to my manager. And he goes, and it's like, okay, well, really, if, if, it's, if, the, if the number is zero, then yeah, we can do it. But unless you're coming back with zero, I, you know, this is a waste of time. But you know, the, the manager comes back, okay, okay, so uh, we can knock off 100 a month. You know, it, it will change a few of your you know, things, but you, know, you can do this. And you're like, no, 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 I, I don't want he says, well, how many vacations do you go on? And they're like, uh, well, not too many because we're kind of poor. That's why I can't do this. Uh, but anyway, uh, he says, well, you know, have you enjoyed this, this vacation? I go, oh, yeah. Says, Isn't it refreshing with your family? And like, yeah. He says, well, don't you love your family? He really said that. You remember that, honey? Don't you love your family? I go, yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm supposed to. And uh, <laughs> I guess that's the right answer. And, and he's like, oh, well, if you love your family, why wouldn't you want them to have this time together? I mean, you know, you work very hard. And I'm like, I do work very hard. And, and he's, he's, he's like, you know, don't you want your family to enjoy this? And you can bond. And he's like, you know, if you really love your family, you've got to make these sacrifices. And I'm like, oh, wow, well, maybe I need to make the sacrifice. And, and so, you know, just pressure, pressure, pressure. And finally, I just say, look. I don't even know if I love my family, so no, I can't do it. I, I'll get back to you about that. And, and he's like, oh, and then he, remember how angry he got? He was like, look, let me, let me get my manager. And so then the manager, this guy leaves, and this, the closer comes. You, have you ever heard of a closer? Yeah, so the closer comes and says, okay, look, what is it going to take for you, for you to do this? And I, uh, I'm like, zero, the, it's zero will, will get me. If, can I have it for free? And no, they don't let you do that. So just so you know, that's off the table. Um, but he was just cramming it down. I mean, and we were there way longer than an hour or two. It was like four hours saying no, no. And I mean, different people kept cycling through, trying to convince us. And they say, look, this is the last offer. I went to so-and-so, and they gave a special permission to give you this offer. I'm like, oh, is it zero? <laughs> and, and it's not. But, uh, but then they you. oh, I know, then they guilt me. I'm like, well, you know, I don't, I just don't know if you love your family. I don't know why you hate them. Are, are you an abuser? You know, we're, we will report you. So anyway, uh, it was... I mean, you really feel under pressure. I mean, I'll never do that again. Uh, I will pay for the tickets. Um, but those closers, they use these methods, okay? Now, I say all that because I want you to understand when we start talking about the methods that are used by Finney, at first it sounds like, well, what's wrong with that? And you need to understand that there are ways to use methods in which you are not 
a closer, right? But there's other ways to use methods that you are giving them opportunity. Does that make sense? So that leads us to the controversy of 1827. This guy named uh, Asael, I think that's how you say it, Nettleton, I know that part. It was a really weird first name. I, I looked it up how to say it, and I, I think that's right. Who knows? Nettleton. This guy named Nettleton uh, noticed these methods. They would go to these revivals to see what's going on, and they saw these methods being done, and so he wrote this general letter warning people, all people, because he didn't know where this was coming from. He went to one of Finney's thing. Finney does all these weird things to try and pressure people, and he's like, I don't think that's right. And so he writes this, let, this open letter because he didn't know if this is originating from Finney or if this is originating from someone else and Finney copied it. And so he's saying, hey, look, this, is, this could be really dangerous. This, isn't, this doesn't even follow our theology of what we think is going on in conversion. And Finney uh, responds to it with slander. He didn't even consider uh, a critique on himself. He immediately started preaching these, these sermons uh, entitled, Can Two Walk Together Except They Be Agreed? And this was his logic. His logic was this. Nettleton was warning about the same things that unbelievers didn't like about his, his uh, sermons. And his, and yeah, the pressure. No one, the unbelievers didn't like it, and now Nettleton doesn't like it. And how can they walk together unless they be agreed? Therefore, Nettleton has just as cold a heart as an unbeliever. You see the logic there? It's something maybe a lawyer might come up with, but not someone that has studied logic. Because what you're, what you're creating here is a false dichotomy. right? You're saying, because of this, it must be that. And there's other options available. Does that make sense? Okay. So even his friends began to warn him. There was a guy named Charles Sears who was a friend of his that said, look, man, I think that those techniques you're using are insinuating something about your theology that can't be right if you're a Presbyterian, if, you're really, if you believe what you say you believe. Um, how can you use these techniques? These are the Methodist techniques. And his response was, you have a cold heart too. Oh yeah, the whole time he's been he's been ordained under the under a presbytery of New York. Of New York. <laughs> what was that? But Baptists did have a presbytery No, um, the, the Congregationalists weren't under the Presbytery, but they were agreeing on the Westminster Confession. Yeah. Good clarification. Yeah. So Ian Murray put it this way. He's the guy that wrote this book. I got, I got uh, information from several sources, but I like Ian Murray's the best because he has more, he lets his feelings come out a little more and it's, it helps me. Historians, we try to, they think the more stale I am, uh, the more objective I'm being. I just think it's ridiculous. So anyway, I really enjoyed this. So if you want to read more, if you want real concrete stuff, read Revival and Revivalism, uh, chapter 9 and 10, and you'll really get... Uh, some good information there. But he put it this way. 
The euphoria brought of success contributed largely to Finney's unwillingness to consider any criticism. Imagine what's going on. You have this guy. He's a young guy. He's been given power immediately. He uh, is using these techniques that is showing what he believes is success. Whether these people are actually converted or not, it almost doesn't matter because he's getting the numbers, right? And these methods are now the thing he must protect because it's the secret to his success. Do you understand what's going on? This is something that happens a lot with young men going into the ministry. They find a technique that really seems to resonate with other people and they show up, their numbers increase, and that technique then becomes that which must be protected. Not Christ. Not the history of the theology that he holds to of orthodoxy. It's this technique because this technique is what's giving me my fame. And so he protects it. Anyone that criticizes it becomes your enemy. You don't self-critique. If you self-critique, you then have to then question the thing that's giving you what you want. This is something that happens a lot. And Finney is uh, an, an incredible example of this whole thing. Okay, moving along quite quickly. So Nettleton's problem was not that Finney was conjuring emotion in people. Think of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was talking about hell in a way that scared people so much there were reports that they held onto their seats, literally because they felt they were going to fall straight into hell. And that's how terrified they were. It wasn't emotion that, that Nettleton was concerned about. Nettleton uh, felt preaching and prayer was great to stir up the emotions of your congregation. What he was concerned about was the adoptions of these further means that go beyond the preaching and prayer, beyond the, the means, the regular means of grace. And these methods that go beyond prayer and go beyond preaching that are designed to be the hard sell was what he was concerned about. Okay? So it's very important to remember. No one was worried about whether people were you know, conjuring up emotion in the heart. I think they expected that out of God's word because the Holy Spirit breaks your heart. It's an emotional experience when the Holy Spirit breaks your heart. No one's heart is broken and you're like, yeah, yeah, I got converted. You know, it's all right. Uh, when the Holy Spirit breaks your heart, you remember it because it is either the greatest moment of your life or the worst moment of your life because there's so much sin you have to confess to the world and so much you have to, you have to be humiliated about because the Holy Spirit just broke your heart. Okay? So what were these methods? Okay, these methods were used um, for the hard sell, for the closer. Um, the idea of using what Nettleton called shocking language, uh, language of damnation. So um, this, this idea of 
uh, trying to shock people with your language in condemning them. Now you have to remember, this is after Jonathan Edwards. Nettleton loved Jonathan Edwards. Okay. Jonathan Edwards spoke in shocking way, not shocking, but descriptive ways of getting to uh, helping people understand what hell is really like. And those descriptions really do make you quake. So what is he talking about? He's not talking about just that. He's talking about language that's designed to shock, that goes way over the top so that it might conjure something within you. This, is, this goes beyond Scripture. Jonathan Edwards was using Scripture and, and developing it. This was going beyond Scripture and using language that just was designed to shock people. It's, uh, it's like that guy, I can't remember his name, but he like uh, swears uh, from the pulpit uh, and it shocks people. And um, I can't remember his name, but he like used to be a fighter of some sort. Uh, anyway, some guy. It happens today. Would that language be considered goading? Yeah, yeah, goading people, yeah. Um, naming particular individuals during the message and in prayer. So, uh, so it'd be like, you know Eugene isn't, isn't a Christian. So in your message, you're like, Eugene, I know you need to hear this because you have a dark heart and you need to listen. And, like, and in your prayer, you're like, oh Lord, help Eugene. I know he's not a believer. He, he hates you and he needs to love you. And that, and that kind of that kind of thing. Now, these things in and of themselves, right, where you're using language that really gets people's attention, or even naming someone in your, in your message, these things in and of themselves isn't what he is saying is evil. What he's saying is when these are designed for you to get the clothes, the clothes on this person, where this person's being obstinate, so you need them to convert. So what are the techniques I need to use? Using inquiry meetings as a way to make them submit. Inquiry meetings was when someone says, well, I don't want to get saved, but I have some questions about this. And so they would say, oh, come on up. If you have questions, yeah, come on up. And it would turn into interrogation, where you had three or four guys the guy's sitting down and they like walk around saying, well, well you, you don't believe this is a sin? What about this? You do this. And, like, eh. and they, they pressure, pressure, pressure. Right? The other one was that he created something, uh, Finney created something called the anxious seat. This is where an unbeliever would say, look, I don't want to get saved. I don't, I don't really think I want to do that, but you can pray for me. And so they'd say, sure, sit in the anxious seat. And so they'd be like, okay. And so they like sit down and said, let us pray over you. And then they'd have you know, these guys put their hands on him and say, you know, pray for this man. He hates the Lord. And he's, I mean, they just start going after him. He's like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, I am a bad person. I'm sorry. And, they, and you know, then there's a conversion like, oh, good. And they, you know, and they closed on this guy. Next guy, right? And, and I know I'm, it, it sounds like I'm caricaturing this, but this is, this is the way that a lot of these things were done. Um, some of it was because of the culture. We live in a very, we live in a very soft culture, we would imagine you know, pressuring someone you know, physically uh, to get them to convert. But back then, uh, you know, if I can try and defend this a little bit, 
back then, people were a little more uh, tough, if I can put it that way. Um, and there was a more, how do I put it, a physical way people were with each other. Um, so this wasn't something that was as shocking as it would be today, but it still was designed to close the deal. It was not designed to let the Holy Spirit do its work. And so what ended up happening is Finney was called on this over and over. And so finally, uh, Finney uh, wrote a sermon that he began to preach all over New York called Make Yourselves a New Heart. And he got it from Ezekiel 18.31. And his, his interpretation of Ezekiel 18.31, which is a terrible interpretation, but you have to remember, he never got any formal training in theology. It was just him and Gail. Okay? And so, uh, him and Gail, uh, so that's all he had, and so this is what he came up with. The idea that the unregenerate man was governed by a, the idea that all men were governed by this fallen nature, right? He believed was false. Okay? This is the foundation of our understanding of, of Adam's sin. Um, and he said that no, Adam was not governed by, by any kind of nature. He was just a neutral person, and so are we. Which means that if we have no sinful nature, then the only reason that we haven't converted is our will. And our will simply needs better information, a turning of our logic, and then we'll see. Um, and that's what he believed. His logic was this, if God commands men to repent, then they must have the ability to, to repent. And of course, what happens oftentimes with people that get hung up on free will and begin to worship it, uh, is that they have, found, um, they have found a philosophy that they don't even realize was a philosophy. Um, really, what, what Finney has stumbled upon was Immanuel Kant an unbelieving philosopher who had this idea of Christianity that was just terrible, trying to maintain human autonomous free will. And so without even knowing it, uh, Finney latches onto this idea that humans have to be autonomously free, uh, which is nowhere really in scripture, uh, but this idea of the philosophical idea of free will became everything to him. Why? It had to become everything to him because the methods that were giving him success was what he had to protect. And in order to protect them, he had to change his theology. And I am telling you, this happens often with young men who are given success quite quickly. They look at the method that gave them success and they begin to protect it. This protection leads them to change their theology. It doesn't happen right away, right? It wasn't until much later that Finney finally detached himself from the, from the Presbyterian world because he had to do it because, of course, in those days, as is the case in most Presbyteries, no one will discipline him. Why? Because he's so successful. Imagine that. A, you know, the Presbytery of New York not disciplining anyone because they're successful. I can't imagine such a thing today. Can you? 
Okay. So, um, so he despised Calvinism. He ended up despising uh, much of, of what we believe. He began to believe that the atonement, Christ's death, was not, and this is a, uh, was not a payment of debt on behalf of those whose sins he bore. It was rather an action to satisfy public justice, making it safe and possible for God to forgive those who repent and believe. So this is a quote from from Finney. The atonement itself does not secure the salvation of any. It merely makes salvation possible. Yeah. Um, he did not agree with the Westminster Confession of Faith on regeneration, on faith, on repentance. He did not believe the will was bound, as Luther and Calvin believed. He did not believe in imputation. Because if, if we don't have a sinful nature, why would Christ need to impute his righteousness on us? We don't have a sinful nature. It's neutral. We chose God, so we're rewarded with, with salvation. So, when he was called on these things, just as a close, when he was called on all this and said, you have slid almost beyond the Methodists themselves um, on your belief system, his response was to become the guru. His response was, these people don't understand. The, the reformed world, and he put it this way, for hundreds of years have not understood what, it, what all of this really means. I understand it. And he became the guru. Beware of someone that becomes well-known because they were the guru on a particular thing. It's usually a result of them going wrong somewhere and them doubling down as the guru on it. Be careful. What can we learn from Finney? Um, just to give you a little, uh, a little end to his world, uh, he enjoyed great success all the way to when he was asked to be a professor at Oberlin College and then eventually the second president of Oberlin College and he died a peaceful death at Oberlin, in Oberlin, Ohio. And you would look at him and say, what a blessed man. And I would say, nope. I wouldn't call that blessed. Um, I know sometimes people ask when we go through these, was, you know, was the person you're talking about a Christian? If he was, it would be a shock to me. You can't deny those kinds of things in a defense of your fame and then say, I'm a Christian. Even at the end, on close to his deathbed, he has memoirs because he loved talking about himself so much that he wrote all these memoirs and he regrets nothing. He even says, I regret nothing. You had a young man who was an immature convert. He was introduced to success very early. He was unable to critique himself 
whether uh, because he did not respect older, more seasoned men. He saw himself as a victim when he was critiqued and then tried to project that victimhood to everyone so they knew that these people were trying to abuse him and give steps to avoid this abuse if you ever run into critique, if you agree with him. He conducted campaigns of manipulation when people disagreed with him or just tried to warn him and say, brother, please don't do this. They became enemy number one immediately. Beware of these kinds of people. Instead of self-assessment, he became the guru of that which he was trying to protect. He became a guru of his own false beliefs. His methods then became non-negotiable. Christ became very negotiable. His theology had to follow what he loved, which was his success. And he needed to remain a guru, so he doubles down on his false theology. You might, because we live in this world of social media, you might run into people like this in varying degrees of, this, of these stages. They may not have gone yet to the false theology yet because they haven't ran into a place where they're, what they've decided to be a guru on is interfering with their theology, but it will eventually. Beware of anyone within these steps. Think hard, because Finney would say things that were really good things. But that's not all that was there. There was more to it. He didn't have the humility to listen to those who were more seasoned than him. So we live at a time where you have a lot of access to people in various degrees of fame, especially in the Christian world. Think about how these steps work and be very careful. If your hero in theology is someone that you've never met, that should be a problem to you. If anything, the hero uh, of, of a Christian should be whoever their pastor is. Really. He's the one that really is invested in you. The guys on the internet have not. So, we are out of time five minutes ago, so let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness to us. We thank you for uh, the ability to come here and worship you. We pray for your, the work of your Holy Spirit to be done in our hearts as we listen to your servant give your word to us. Lord, we pray for uh, your wisdom today as we listen and humility as we listen. In your son's name, amen.